1: In that case, I pronounce
0: you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. we're prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio Network. My name is Tom Tutal Cunningham. I'm a motivational speaker helping people to live positively with and through the challenges of life. I've had rheumatoid arthritis from my jaw to my toes since the age of five, that's 46 years now. And in that time, I've had four hips, four knees, and two shoulders replaced, which makes me sound like a spider. And I've been hospitalized about 40 times. I also stand about five foot one, hence the nickname Too Tall, and that's due to the heavy daily doses of the steroid prednisone that I took to fight my arthritis. Of course, everybody knows that I always answer amazing when asked how I'm doing. And you can find out more about me and my uh, radio show at my website, Tom, the number two and tall, dot com. My guest today is kind of a hero of mine, Dov Barron. In June 1960, while free rock climbing, Dov uh, Barron fell approximately 120 feet and landed on his face. The impact shattered most of the bone structure of his face, disintegrating some of his upper jaw and fracturing his lower jaw and. In- four places. After nine reconstructive surgeries, no external evidence remains of the damage. However, this experience obviously was life-changing. Before the fall, uh, Dove had spent years building a reputation as a dynamic speaker and teacher in the field of personal and professional development, but it wasn't until sometime after the fall that he began to see the beauty and elegance uh, of what had really happened and return to his own core, what he calls his authentic self. And today, uh, Dove is a mentor to leaders in a variety of fields. He is a thought leader and speaker. He's also a best-selling author of several books, including Don't Read This Unless You Want More Money, and a hero somewhat of mine because his uh, radio show is incredibly well listened to and downloaded a lot Uh, Someday I'll have those numbers But now I'm learning from him Welcome to the show today
1: Thank you Tom It's a pleasure to be here Thanks for having me on the show I want to thank all of your listeners For taking the time out to tune in And listen to you And that you take the time To make sure that you have great gifts Great guests So that you can give your listeners Really high quality for the time that they put in So I want to thank you Tom And I also want to thank the listeners For giving us their time
0: I appreciate that so much, and uh, I have looked at your picture online to see if there's any evidence of this face plant you did and all those nine reconstructive surgeries. Wow, that is amazing work. There is no – you must have had great doctors.
1: Uh, well, actually, uh, first of all, I'll just correct them. I didn't fall in 1960 because if I have fallen in 1960, I would have
0: been two. And I wouldn't have built much of a Oh, 1990, that. yeah. <laughs> nineteen six. You, you, you mirrored the number up. Yeah, you're down. like 100 years old.
1: <laughs> well, that might be true. I have a painting <laughs> in your mirror, don't you know? <laughs> uh, there, there, actually, there are some photographs um, online, um, even on my Facebook page, of some of the earlier reconstructive surgeries. And you can see how mangled up I was. And, yeah, I'm very fortunate that I don't look so so bad now. Um, I, you know, you said I must have had great surgeons initially. I didn't actually. Uh, they butchered me initially. Uh, crossed over the roof of my mouth, so I couldn't speak properly. My jaw was lopsided. One eye was lower than the other. Um, to use my colourful language, they made a balls of me. And fortunately, I had great uh, surgeons later that I went and found, and who did really terrific job. So. Only if you know what you're looking for now can you see the scars.
0: Wow. And so your experience kind of dovetails on what I try to encourage and inspire people to live positively through these adversities and challenges. Many of them just come upon us, not our fault, nothing that we did to cause it. Uh, It just happens. And so... Um I have found also some, from some mothers I know that two mothers that have kids that were paralyzed uh and uh, they said oh they're not taking it positively I said how did they were they before and they said well they were negative people before so they haven't changed so I guess it helped to be positive before but was it really 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 tough to maintain a positive attitude when you were in the middle of success now your face uh, scares people and you may not be able to talk and uh, all that success now is like in the past.
1: Well, w- let's put things in perspective, first of all. As you know, Tom, I'm very direct, so I'm going to be just as direct as I always am. And that's, let's say, let me be really clear, that when I felt there was nothing positive about it. It sucked. I knew it sucked and, it, and I was really a pissed off individual. There was nothing positive about me. Uh, I, I, my whole life, and my whole career, was destroyed. Mm-hmm. And I spent the first nine months um, being positive. Actually, it was really interesting. I was nine months being positive, telling, me, oh, yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be, you know, well, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm going to be back on my feet. And all the time focused on um, how I could get back. And it was on about nine months in, which is interesting about a gestation period. Mm-hmm. Uh, I gestated my, my own, my own uh, transformation. And at about nine months in, I remember clearly being in my living room, and it was like I'd been hit by a tidal wave of depression that literally knocked me to my knees, and I fell in a ball crying, weeping, and realized well, there is no back. You can't go back. That's not how life works. Once Humpty Dumpty's fallen, you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And it was <laughs> at that moment I realized I couldn't go back. I had to go forward, and that was depressing, that was, seemed insurmountable, but it was the greatest thing that could have happened to me because I stopped having a positive attitude about history and I had a realistic, optimistic attitude about moving forward, that I had to deal with my own shit, I had to move forward, I had to clear whatever was in the way, and I had to, I had to decide that it was about something bigger. And I had done that once before, which you probably, I'm sure you don't know, most people don't, but, you know, you talked about rheumatoid arthritis. Well, at 21, I was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis. Do you know mm. what that is?
0: Yes, that's one of the over 100 forms of arthritis and a painful right. one at that.
1: And I was diagnosed with that at 21, and for those of you who don't know what it is and they don't expect you to, it literally just bends you over at the waist until you, you look like you're in constant bowel position because um, the the spine has sort of welded itself together. Extremely painful, and I was told I would be in a wheelchair. Uh, sorry, that was 19 when that happened, and at 21, I decided seriously to do something about it. And five years later, I went back to, I was told it was incurable, five years later, I had to get a medical to get clearance for my immigration papers to Australia, and was told uh, I couldn't get them because of this diagnosis. I went back to the doctor who diagnosed me, and he gave me a clean bill. And I said, how do you explain that if there's no cure? And he said, I can't explain it. And I said, I'll tell you what I did so that you can tell your patients. And he said, no, nope, can't do that. That's not allowed. I'm not allowed to do that. I have to stick to the medicine. And I went, okay, good. Well, just sign me off and I'll go. And he did. And I continued on my merry way. So I've been defeated more than once. And this is the thing that I want all of you to understand. You know, Tom's talking about you know, being having to deal with uh, rheumatoid arthritis since he was five, 46 years, and you should really know it, that these things are not singular events. So I felt a mountain. that wasn't the event, it was the one that's most notable. But there's been many falls in my life, and you, as a listener, have had falls. And the truth of the matter is, here's what I believe. It's not the truth, it's just the truth for me. Every human being has falls. Mine was literal. Some people's are financial. Some people's are uh, a divorce. You know, there's all kinds of ways to have a fall
0: mm-hmm. that is
1: metaphorical. And the fall, I believe, not the truth again, just what I believe, I believe those falls are there for a reason. I believe they're our soul, and I don't mean that in a particularly religious way, but that very core of who we are calling out, asking us to step up and be bigger than the way we've been and to put our ego aside and and to work towards something greater, that there's something greater about us. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, my fall from the mountain was was my last big fall, but I had many, many falls before that. Some were literal, uh, like falling off things, and some were more figurative, like being diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis.
0: Wow, wow. Now, uh, you had mentioned that after the fall or in the introduction, you return to your core or your authentic self. Now, Napoleon Hill might call that your definite chief aim or your definite purpose. I call it a God-given definite purpose. Um, Now, that is important. So many people ask me, Tom, I don't know my purpose. How do I find my purpose? How do I become who I was created to become? Uh, Tell me about how that process happened for you about returning to your core or finding your authentic self because people, I think, are longing to find their authentic self so they can be their authentic self.
1: Uh, It's it's a great question, Tom, and I I, I think you're absolutely right that people are longing for it, but I don't know that they're desirous of it. There's a distinction there. So, you know, people will tell you that they're longing to be wealthy, but they won't work hard enough to become wealthy. Mm. They'll tell you they're longing to be in great shape, but they won't get their ass out of bed in the morning to go exercise, you know, or, or resist the donut or whatever it is. So I think there's a real clear distinction that we all have to make here, and that is the longing versus the desire. And the desire is, uh, for me, the, the, way, the way I see it, is the desire is the one that will get you really moving. And so when you talk about that, it's really simple and not very pleasant. And that is, how do you find your core? Pain. Human beings are motivated by two primary factors. First one is pleasure, but it doesn't last. We're motivated by pleasure, it'll get us going, but it doesn't last. However, pain, the constant awareness of pain, will push you, and for some people it pushes them down a spiral, Mm-hmm. But but connecting to that pain and saying, I will not have this anymore, I will not be beaten by this anymore, I will not continue with this behavior anymore, it is destructive, I have to change, that level of pain becomes a driving force in your life, and that is what drives you to your core, that's what drives you to your authentic self, and from there, you, anything that you, you can do all kinds of little tests online, or quote-unquote, find your passion. But if you're not connected to your core, it will always be a surface level and you'll know something is missing. And for most people, they won't go there until they have, quote-unquote, a fall, until they hit something that makes them look deeply into that mirror of our soul.
0: Nice. It's so, so, so true, and unfortunately true, because when things are going good, we could make that same change. But usually... Some kind of a fall. Oh, by the way, I have a poster on my wall. I just turned my chair to read it. Uh, Napoleon Hill, quote, desire is the starting point of all achievement. Not a hope, not a wish, but a keen, pulsating desire which transcends everything. That is desire. That's not just hoping or wishing. That's it.
1: Those 16 principles from Napoleon Hill are still as good today as they were when I read them. 35 years ago, they're still rock solid. And if you don't have a desire, you have a wish. And wishes are worth nothing. They're very nice, enjoy them, but you're not going anywhere with them. Desire will get you up in the morning way before anybody else and put you to bed way after everybody else. It will make you do things that you've never even dreamed are possible because that desire is there. And that desire has to be spawned in your... what I call your soul, but in your core, in that part of you that is so deeply connected that it will overcome sabotage, it will overcome the mind, it will say, this, I have to do this, I don't have an option, it's not a choice anymore, this is how I live.
0: Nice, (laughs) and that is a very strong statement to your entire being, your subconscious being into the universe when you get to that point. Now, Dov, you've been talking uh, for years on stages and uh, to leaders about authentic leadership. Uh, We hear a lot about leadership. Uh, We don't always hear a lot about authentic leadership. Uh, What would you mean by authentic leadership? Uh, Because does that mean a leader could be vulnerable, admit mistakes, uh, be less harsh, uh, what can tell us what, it, what you talk about or what you mean when you say authentic leadership and also try and apply it to, because we're not all business leaders, but we could be family leaders, we could be church right. leaders, we could be yeah. a high school baseball team leader, we could be a volunteer scout leader. We're all leaders. But if we can well, be a real authentic person as a leader, that's where you're going to have lessons learned from people. Absolutely. And I think, you
1: know, so I've been speaking about authenticity for, for 30 years, 30 years. Way before it was a cliche, now kind of a cool word to say. Um, and the, the trouble with it is now it is a clicky word. And so if you and I, Tom, walk through uh, the mall there in Toronto and we, we ask people randomly, are you authentic? We ask 100 people, how many of them will say yes? Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> All of
1: them A hundred of them Because yeah. they don't know that they're not See that's the challenge with authenticity Most people don't know when they're not authentic So you, so again we usually need a wake up call We need something to to show What the heck am I doing right. So to be an authentic leader Requires self-knowledge And in in my writings One of the things I talk about in some of my books and In my latest book which is called Fiercely Loyal One of the things I state in there is uh, self-knowledge is the foundation of true authentic leadership. So if, you have not, if you've not self-inquired, then you don't get to be a leader. Now, of course, I work with uh, big leaders in, in industries, in corporations, um, with Olympic athletes, with, with uh, professional athletes, with, with all kinds of leaders, uh, uh, Hollywood, whatever it is, I work with all those kinds of leaders. Leadership is, a, is, is very much a personal thing first. You can't really lead anyone else until you lead yourself. And leading yourself is not possible without self-knowledge, anything, uh, certainly not authentic leadership. So you have to know who you are. And knowing who you are is really knowing your strengths and knowing your weaknesses, knowing where to ask for help. One of the terrible things about leaders is they're often horrible at asking for help. They have to be right about everything, as opposed Mm -hmm. to going, you know what, I don't know. Let me see if I know anybody who does know. And reaching out and finding out, because the great leaders, the real authentic leaders, are people who have resources. And by that I mean they know exactly where their weak spots are, and they have the people in place. And as a great example, um, Henry Ford, of the Ford Motor (laughs)
0: Company. I was thinking of the (laughs) same example. Go ahead. Yeah.
1: When he, when he was given a government contract that was worth back then, I think it was a million dollars. I may be wrong on the number, but it was a big, big money then. Let's consider it a billion-dollar contract today. And so he had to go in front of Congress and because they, they were outraged that he was getting all this money. And they said, you know, how do we even know that you can, you can manage this and you can fulfill this? And they said, you know, what, what is the rate of return on this? And he looked in at them and said, I've no idea. And they said, well, why would we give you all this money? And he says, well, hold on, I'll tell you why. And he points out to somebody in the, in the auditorium, and he says, tell us what the rate of return is, Mr. whoever, Mr. Smith. I'll make up a name. And he says, this is my accountant. And he turns up and tells them the numbers. And he says to somebody else, well, how do somebody, another congressman asks, how do you know if, this, if the material you're using is any good? He says, I don't. That's Mr. Jones. And he asks Mr. Jones, and he gives the answer. See, why Ford was brilliant, was because he knew what he was really good at, and he knew that he had to find the resources of what he was not good at. And whether you are a multi-billion dollar corporation, or you're a one-woman, one-man entrepreneurial process, the biggest mistake you'll ever make is to try and do it all on your own. And the argument from small business, entrepreneurial business, is we're not financial enough yet. We don't have the financial resources. Well, guess what? You will never have the financial resources until you invest. And you have to invest in the people who can help you. Now, that means you must do your due diligence because every man and his dog will tell you they're an expert. That doesn't mean they are. You have to find people who genuinely are and you've seen results and you can check those results. And then you put your money there to make sure you grow your business by somebody doing what you are not
0: good at. Right. Right. Right, and that was the key to success of Andrew Carnegie as well. <laughs> Andrew Carnegie, exactly. people asked him all the time about, you know, how to make metal and this and that about our steel industry. He didn't know a thing about making steel, but he did know about oh, putting so. good people together and uh, delegating everything. Uh, and he had a good, really good president that he trusted. And this was the key to Andrew Carnegie's success, who has admittedly many times said he didn't know anything really about this making or manufacturing of steel. Uh, and yet he Same built with
1: Howard Hughes.
0: The, uh, Howard. Howard Hughes?
1: <laughs> Howard Hughes and the Hughes Tool Company said he knew nothing about making tools, didn't care about making tools, had no interest in making tools, but he had a great team to do that. He was an innovator and a creator who made the push-up bra, Designed, designed planes did all kinds of things that had nothing to do with the steel co- uh, the tool company. He understood that that was his resource, and he used that resource, and he had the right people in place. Take a look at any of the great people; they've done that,
0: right? And and it, it it might sometimes be hard for a leader to actually implement this because leaders tend to want to be in on everything. Uh, Be busy, 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 and they sometimes don't let, want to let people who are probably nipping at heels for their job, to have more responsibility. And so, how does uh, there must be some steps that you can uh, think of or talk about for an authentic leader to take? As you said, first you have to have that self knowledge, and often to get that self knowledge, you may need some outside people from outside your company, giving you that self-knowledge, not some... There's no
1: doubt that that, that's not... Outside people is not, even for a second, any other option. Here's the news, folks, not just for you, but for me, for all of us. Nobody is objective in their own subjective reality. (laughs) You can (laughs) objective about your own reality. You need somebody who can see what you can't see. We all don't know what we don't know. We all don't know what we blind ourselves to, and you've got to get outside help. And, again, you've got to do due diligence and make sure you can trust that person. But if you, can, if you really can trust that person, th- this, can be, this is the thing that can catapult you in your success, is having great people and knowing your weaknesses, asking for the help, but also knowing yourself. So, you know, the, the biggest curse of all is to BS yourself. As uh, what's his name? Give me a minute. Feynman, Richard Feynman, the great physicist, Nobel laureate, uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner, um, said, "The the one thing we must not do is fool ourselves, and the easiest thing for us to do is to fool ourselves."
0: <laughs> Good we're brilliant, at,
1: we're, we're, <laughs> we're brilliant at bullshitting ourselves, and we've got to get help. Right. So that's the part of that's the piece in it. Uh, And many of the leaders I work with go from being seventy-hour-a-week people down to thirty hours a week. Uh, Several of the leaders I'm working with right now, uh, one of them I can think of right now takes fourteen weeks a year off. Uh, Another one who is uh, I'm doing some work with has already got good start, so he's now at twenty-two weeks a year off. With with a a multi-multi tens of millions close to the $100 million mark as a company.
0: Wow. Wow. And most uh, leaders uh, only dream of s- such a, like, almost like a normal lifestyle instead yeah. of uh, having to work, as you said, 70-hour weeks, uh, meetings upon meetings, uh and being involved in a lot of things where really they're not the expert there, so why are they even needing to be there so, so this is so important so what what would you th- say to business leaders? What is the number one challenge that business leaders and business in general is facing at this time
1: Well, oh, there's no doubt about it so the the biggest challenge right now is that we have a whole new generation in the workforce, so mm-hmm. um, you know, I am a baby boomer. Um, I'm at the young end of the baby boomers. You're a little. I think you're a little younger than me, so you're probably at the beginning of Generation X. Um, I'm, a 51. The, I'm 51. I'm 51.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. So you're at the beginning. You're at the beginning of Generation X. And so the the um, the next generation is we went from baby boomers to Generation X, and the next one are the millennials. And the challenge is that millennials, the greatest challenge in business right now is, is that the largest workforce in the history of the industry, uh, which was, of course, the baby boomers, now is the millennials. They're going to way outnumber us. Uh, baby boomers are entering retirement age at a record number. And millennials are now the oldest end, uh, 30 to 35 years old. So they're in leadership positions. And here's the deal. Millennials do not want to stick around. So when you and I started our working careers, we were asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And that meant you chose a 20-, 30-, 40-year career. Millennials don't want that. They're not interested in that. And my my new book called Fiercely Loyal, which will be out at the end of September, it speaks directly to how to build fiercely loyal millennials, how to have them work with you and stick with you. The greatest challenge they have is keeping top talent, keeping the top talent to stay with them how do you do that
0: and that's what we work with wow that sounds almost impossible to have millennials love to work with you and be fiercely uh, loyal that is if 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 businesses could do that that could turn them around i'm thinking about what if someone like myself 50 60 year old leader in a company uh, and he has a lot of uh, millennials working for him uh, <laughs> how does he adapt? He can become authentic as he wants, but he's still authentic as a fifty, sixty-some-year-old guy versus these young pups who don't speak his language, don't understand his thinking, don't show up for work on time. Uh, blah blah blah. Uh, yeah. How, well, do, how do you how do you change if you're already like older? See, so you, you, I just want to. It's very interesting
1: your language there, Tom. <laughs> You suggested that the millennials have to change in order to talk to the sure. 50-year-old, and it's yes. exactly the opposite. We have to change. We can speak to. So, in in our generation, was this idea that you pay your dues and that was Correct. time. Guess what? Doesn't happen with millennials. They don't care about time. They can learn things at, at lightning speeds compared to us because of the availability of information. The thing that took us 10 years to learn, they're going to learn in half an hour on, on YouTube. So they're learning much, much faster. And we've got to learn to understand that they are not us. And, let, you know, one of the chapters in my book is, is about, it's called The Weird Generation. Weird as in weird and wonderful. Um, and that is, is thinking about it. You know, it, as a baby boomer, uh, my parents thought I was really weird um, I was a little young because, as I said, I was at the young end of the uh, baby boomers, but baby boomers were the hippies. They were 1968 hippies. They were make make peace, not war. They were doing acid and partying and, and dropping out, man, you know, and they weren't <laughs> going to work for the man. Well, they went on to become uh, big business, and they gave birth to children who became Generation X's, your generation, obviously, uh, Younger than you, but they became Generation Xs. And the Generation Xs were frowned upon by the baby boomers because they became punks, and punks were anti-establishment. They were anti-authority. And we said, oh, well, they're weird. And now those Generation Xs have given birth to millennials who are hipsters with long beards looking like uh, cool rabbis and, oh. and a millennial mentality about work um, and we're saying, well, they're entitled and they're weird. It's, it's the thing we've got to grasp. Like, we've got to get over this idea that the younger generation don't know anything and that they're weird. No, they're not. They're different. And we have to adapt. They don't. We're oh, They're not living we, in our world. We're living in theirs.
0: Oh, I have to change? <laughs> <laughs> but so true, so true. Uh, they're different. Uh, I just went through some training with Honda recently, and yeah, that's what they emphasize as well. That this uh, new generation is different. They're just they're not better or worse, just different. And so, exactly. now that uh, you mentioned your book, fiercely loyal, upcoming end of September. The subtitle yep. on that is how high performing companies develop and retain top talent. Uh, that must be one of the most key, crucial things that could add to a business, P&L and uh, even balance sheet, is retention of people. Just If you add up the costs of re- uh, hiring, recruiting, training, uh, and brilliant minds, you may hire someone brilliant and lose them. That just can lose momentum in your business like crazy. Well, people don't
1: realize that... that um that the average, so first of all, training and development is a foregone conclusion, it's a foregone expense, meaning you don't have a choice, you've got to do it. Somebody comes into your company, they don't know the job, you've got to train them, that's all there is to it. And the average company will spend 1.5 to two times the annual salary of an individual on their training and development. Well if you're spending 1.5 to two times the annual income of that individual, and they leave in a year, That is a depreciating asset, and people are appreciating assets over time. So you've lost money by hiring that person. What's more, and that's only one side of this, what's more is in order to train them and develop them, you have a fund. You have a training and development fund. Now, the problem is that the people who are loyal to you and who stay, now their fund has gone down. They're not getting developed because that particular position or positioned has got such a high turnover rate that it's sucking that fund dry. So the people who are staying with you are now getting the development and the training that they want so they can evolve, so they can climb the ladder or whatever it is. So this is a horrendously high-costing problem.
0: Wow, I hadn't even thought of it about the, yeah, what did you say, 1.5 times their salary. In developing to 2 them.
1: times their
0: salary, yeah. Right. And so if they leave in a year you just lost money. You've lost money well, right on your P and L statement. They, you lost money.
1: If they leave in two years, you you've only broken even, you've got no return on your investment. So if you don't keep those people for three years, you've got nothing. You've got somebody wow. filling a seat, that's it.
0: Wow. And uh, with the younger people, if they see leadership that is not authentic, uh, phony, uh, they can spot that pretty quickly, a mile away, and that's not usually the culture that they're going to want to stay in. And so, again, the importance of retaining people starts at the very top. And goes down from there. And so again, you said self-examine. You gotta look at yourself and who you are as a leader, authentic. And take the hard lumps. Take the uh, kick in the pants when somebody says you're not great at this. Um, and uh, so also uh, uh, give us maybe three or four tips for these sea uh, level people to uh, that they can do to keep their people. Fiercely loyal, as you talk about in in the book, because it is so sure. important.
1: Absolutely. Well, first of all, the thing you need to know, and again, I want to give you a moment to get a pen because this is really important and it's well well worth you writing down. And I'm going to tell you in advance that you might be going. Well, I'm not. I'm not a ten million, twenty million, hundred million, one billion dollar company. I'm a small entrepreneur. Okay. I promise you. If you take notes on this and think about how you can apply this, because whether you, whether it's now or tomorrow, you will be dealing with millennials as employees, as contractors, or as customers. And what I'm going to share with you right now around loyalty and millennials applies to all of those categories. So first and foremost, as an employer, you need to know that your millennials – want autonomy they want autonomy so what does that mean well the idea of you know we, we think that if we were going to uh, motivate somebody who was a baby room or even a generation x we would talk to them about the corner office millennials don't care about the corner office they have one it's called starbucks
0: <laughs> they
1: want independence they want they want autonomy so you've got to be able to give them that autonomy. And part of that autonomy, I was having a discussion today with a big CEO, and he said, you know, he said, yeah, I don't know how to deal with them. He said, I have a daughter who's one. And he said, you know, he said she was working for a company she absolutely loved, and then she had this problem with an HR person, and she left because of it. And I said, what was the problem? And She said, the HR person made a comment about her clothing, about her attire. And I said, yep, dead in the water. And she, he goes, really? And I go, yeah, autonomy. Autonomy means I am me. You can't tell me how to to be. So they want to come to work in clothes that you and I are going, what the hell are you doing? Or, you know, they've got tattoos. And, you know, in our generation, that was for drunken sailors. Now it's cool and trendy. So we have to – autonomy means you have to really accept that people are who they are, and they're not going to necessarily fall inside your guidelines. And so what you want has to change, meaning you want results, but you've got a, a millennial mindset. You've got to get to, it doesn't matter how you get me the results, as long as they're ethical, of course. It doesn't matter how you get me the results. I just want the results. And they go, okay, fine. So (laughs) autonomy, number one. Number two is mastery. They want mastery. Now, what that means is if they work for you, they want to know that you are going to spend money training and develop them in order for them to get better at what it is they do And what's more is that will change fast. So as soon as they feel they've got it, they'll want to move to something else. And the interesting thing is that we think of millennials as, or we tend to think of millennials as being, quote, unquote, entitled. But the interesting thing about all the millennials I've interviewed and worked with is they actually want responsibility. So they want mastery so they can get higher levels of responsibility. That's the second one third one, and, and in many ways this is the most important, although there's more to come, um, is that they, they need to be doing meaningful work, meaning that they need to know that your company is purpose-driven and that there's meaning to their work beyond the paycheck. They're not as motivated by the paycheck as, as the previous generations. They need to know it's meaningful work. Number four. They need to make sure that they have an emotionally safe place. Large corporations are struggling for innovation today, and the reason is because it's still being dealt with in in an old leadership model. And if the dictatorial leadership model works, there's no emotional safety, no emotional safety, guess what? You have no innovation. And finally, finally, if you want to build great loyalty, you have to have a culture built on an authentic, what we call a full Monty story. A story that reveals the trials and tribulations of the company and it has to be real, so not some bullshit spin. It has to be real. And that means that the person telling it has to be real. So if I was telling it about my company, I would have to talk about the struggles we've had. I'm telling it about myself, I talk about the fall. And then I would have to tie those two things together. And this piece, is something that if you're in a business on your own and you're a single entrepreneur or you're a CEO of a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar organization, you cannot miss this. You have to have this. It builds fierce loyalty in, in your employees, in your consultants, in your suppliers, and in your customers. And that's one of the things that I do as well. I have the Authentic Speaker Academy for Leadership. And we only take 12 people on a year because it's very intensive, it says right there on the website, this is the toughest speaking leadership program on the planet. You will want to quit if you get in, should you qualify, Um, although you can't. Once you get in, I I can throw you out, but you can't quit. It's incredibly tough. But the reason it's tough is because it takes you to that core, takes you right down to the very core of you, so you can develop this powerful, 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 authentic story that will create fierce loyalty. People will become fiercely loyal and even evangelical about you and what it is you do.
0: Wow, wow, and and people um, stories are so important. Uh, we don't really care about facts, and we care about them. But you know the P and L statement shows this is not a story. And if you can really put together an authentic story of who you are as a leader, who the company is. In your view of the company authentically, um, you, as you said, you will have people fiercely loyal because people love uh, to follow a story, an authentic, genuine, honest story. A double-ended question here. Um, uh, uh, If a guy is a C-level executive and he knows there are some challenges culture-wise and he has a bunch of millennials... Um, how would he go about uh, finding you and talking to you? And then also for that same guy, uh, do you only work with the leadership teams of companies or do you work with the rank and file, the uh, customer-facing managers, all those type of things?
1: Um, so how first, the first thing is the way that that person would get, or the way that that leader would get a hold of me is uh, go to you can go to my website, which is I'm sure you're going to post there, but it's fullmontyleadership.com, full monty as in the movie of the naked people, full f u l l monty m o n t y leadership.com. Uh, uh, you can go there. You'll see samples of me speaking. You get some overviews of what it is we do, um, and then uh, you can also call my office. Uh, and speak to my assistant, Jennifer, 778-397-7717. You can play that back and listen to it again. Uh, that's how you'd get a hold of me. Um, do, who do I work with? I work with, as I said, leaders. So they are CEOs. They are C-suite. They're also leaders in other industries. Um, I don't work with, quote, unquote, as you put it, the rank and file.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I work with the leaders for a simple reason. When I work with uh, middle management people, it was really obvious, that it was a waste of time. (laughs) Really. I mean, I got paid, and that was nice, but it was a waste of time. And and I'm more authentic than that. I don't want to waste my time, their time, and I feel somewhat inauthentic if I'm getting paid to do something that's not going to make any difference. So it becomes a bloody suntan that wears off. When I work with the top C-level, I get such buy in that they then want to know how to take this into their organization, and we certainly help them to do that. We, we design uh, processes for them to take it into the whole organization, right down to the, the, the janitor. But it has to start at that, that absolute top. And I also separately work one-on-one, and I have a limited number of people that I mentor. And I work with them on a month-to-month basis under a contract contract, And I mentor them individually. And as I said, some of those people are very high-level CEOs. And actually, some of them are uh, small entrepreneurs. They just realize that this is the thing they've got to do. And as I said, they have a deep desire. It's not a choice, that they've got to do it. And one of the things I posted today is that there are three great excuses that will keep you stuck. One is I don't have the money. Uh, which sometimes in a corporate sense comes out as we don't have it in our budget. I don't have the time. In a corporate situation, that says this is a big ship to turn around. Mm -hmm. And the third one is um, they'll think I'm crazy. Um, That turns around with, well, I have to get the board to sign off on it. Uh, All of them, just so you know, are all bullshit. They're lies. Don't believe them for a second. And I'll tell you why. Because every one of us has done something against that meaning you have not had the money, but when the desire, not the, not the want, the desire was big enough, you found the money. I know I've done it. I've spent my rent back, you know, 30-odd years ago. I uh, spent my rent to do something that I knew was really important and vital to my moving forward, and I did it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we don't have time. I don't know many people who are much busier than I am, but I always find time when something is absolutely important enough to me I have a big enough desire. And the third one is when something matters enough to you, you will have to own that, which means you are willing to face the, the, the naysayers. You are willing to say, I am, I and what I want to do here is so important that even if they think I'm crazy, I will do this. And you've done that too. So we've all faced those big fat lies and called them the truth. And the only reason that they are true... It's because the desire wasn't big enough.
0: But when the desire is big enough, you make it happen. Nice. Now, I'm going to go over your website again, because with your wonky accent there, some of my friends won't understand what the heck you said. So, Full Monty, everybody remembers this movie, Full Monty. I didn't see it, but I know what it contains, nakedity. So, uh, Full Monty, F-U-L-L, Monty, M-O-N-T-Y. And then is it leadership after that?
1: yeah fullmontyleadership.com
0: so fullmontyleadership.com for those of you who don't understand australian
1: <laughs> i didn't i didn't claim that i speak canadian yet
0: uh, you, know <laughs> you, have, you have to say a a lot more a sorry
1: you know what let me let me let me give let me give you a listeners a gift is
0: that yes, okay yeah please yeah i love gifts
1: okay write this down f as in Freddie m as in Mother Loyalty, fmloyalty.com.
0: Okay. If you go
1: there, uh, I've got a special report there. You can, you can go there and you can download that special report, and it goes through the three sentences that you can use to generate fierce loyalty. And, again, these questions work really great, um, certainly with employees, but they also work with customers.
0: Wow. Ooh, with customers.
1: Yeah, you can use it with your customers. Um, I've got sales teams now using these. They've tweaked them a little bit, working them with sales teams, having enormous success.
0: So I'm going to put that on my website. But uh, for those of you, again, who didn't understand, it's FM Loyalty, L-O-Y-A-L-T-Y. I guess FM is standing for Full Monty. So FullMontyLoyalty.com. Get those questions. Imagine if you had questions that can make your customers fiercely loyal. Uh, Man, I'm going to go get it myself. So fmloyalty.com and then fullmontyleadership.com. I went to Amazon today, and you're blessed to have a unique name, not any other Dove Barons, too many in the world. And when I uh, put your name in Amazon, it seemed like there was a page of books. There was like three or four or some odd number of books. So they can also go there. Uh, when your fiercely loyal book comes out the end of September, but just to, if they want to go there beforehand, they're welcome to do that. Go to Amazon, just type in D O V B A R O N, Dove Baron, and you'll see there's a good selection of books there already.
1: Yep, and you can also find my podcasts and my radio show on iTunes. Again, just put in Dove Baron and then search under radio or search under podcasts and you'll find my podcast and radio show there. And, of course, I'm on YouTube and Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and all those kinds of places. So just reach out to me any way you want.
0: Amazing, and uh, this is uh, my inspiration now to get the show onto iTunes, uh, build up my listenership uh, to the numbers you had, which are legendary. I never even would have thought of putting those numbers on paper as a goal. So uh, amazing. Thanks so much for your time uh, today, uh, Dove. I appreciate it so much. Leaders, if you lead any group of people, uh, corporate leaders, you really need to speak to Dove. Uh, Be authentic with yourself, your strengths and weaknesses. Get back to a 30-hour week instead of a 90-hour week and get people who are going to be fiercely loyal so that when you're working your 30 versus 90 hours, you don't have to worry. So uh, FullMonteLeadership.com, get the three questions to make your employees fiercely loyal and customers at FMLoyalty.com. And, of course, come to my website. All the details will be there as well. Have an amazing day, Dove.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me, and thanks to the listeners for tuning in.